Welcome back to the program. It used to be that we had a somewhat standard set of expectations as to what it means to be a grown-up. If there weren't norms, really, at least they were a general set of expectations. College, marriage, a house, a car, kids, all the accoutrements of the American dream. It's interesting that even amid the turmoil and social and cultural transitions of the 60s and 70s, these stars remain pretty fixed in our imagination. Yet the broader economic transitions of globalization, economic disparity, and deindustrialization have had a far greater impact. One that has tilted these expectations off their axis and may be creating a generation where coming of age and where adulthood means something entirely different. We're going to talk about this with our guest, Jennifer Silva. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School and the author of Coming Up Short, Working Class Adulthood in an Age of Uncertainty. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Jennifer Silva, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. One of the things we think about often when we think about young people in their 20s beginning their adult life, coming out of school, is an unlimited set of choices, a great future before them. In fact, one of the things that you talk about in Coming Up Short and as a result of all the interviews that you did with young people is that we're finding an absence of choices in many cases. Talk a little about that. That's true. I think when we think about young adults coming of age, we see those years post-college as a time of exploration where they figure out what they want to do with their life. So maybe they'll do internships to try out different kinds of jobs, or maybe they'll take a you know post-college year and travel so that they can figure out who they are and what they want to be. And the sense of exploration and the sense of possibility was profoundly absent from the lives of the working class men and women I spoke with. Instead, they felt like they were facing a future with no choices, where they couldn't depend on a job, uh, they couldn't depend on a partner, they were afraid to invest in a relationship because they didn't know if they'd be able to pay a bill or they didn't know if maybe they'd get hurt or sick and they would be, you know, set even further back. So for the for the young adults who are growing out without the privilege of parents who can, you know, help them transition to adulthood, there really are fewer and fewer choices. And when you talk about parents helping them make that transition to adulthood, is it simply an economic issue or is, does it have to do with, with class in many cases that parents who had perhaps have not gone to college, have not had that experience, are less helpful in, in guiding them and helping them navigate in these areas? Absolutely. I think it is an, an issue of know-how. You know, the college landscape is so complicated, it's expensive, it's confusing. And so when it comes to knowing how to apply, knowing what tests you have to take, uh, knowing what classes in high school you should take to get into a good college, um, choosing a major that will get you a good job, or even filling out a FAFSA to get aid, these are all very confusing uh, processes if you haven't been through it yourself. Um, and so, you know, for kids who come from more privileged families, they have their parents to help them, but they also probably have their parents' friends to help them. Um, whereas, you know, these working class kids, their own parents haven't been through it, um, and so they don't have advice to give them. And they're also pretty isolated, so they don't have maybe a teacher or a pastor who could step in and help them figure out their path. What about the schools themselves and the degree to which counselors and people within the school system might provide some help and some guidance in these areas? What did you find? 
I mean, I think that would be that would be the goal, but that wasn't happening for the men and women I spoke with. Instead, schools were kind of seen as another enemy, as another site of betrayal or bewilderment. For example, maybe someone would say, "Oh, I had an." A learning disability my whole life, but no one no one caught it because they were busy doing other things. And so instead of seeing school as a place where they could get support and guidance, you know, not knowing how to use the system, they ended up feeling even more betrayed. And one of the things this is part of, and one of the things you found in, in these surveys and the interviews that you did in, in Richmond, Virginia, and Lowell, Massachusetts, is that it's part of a much broader institutional distrust that that seems to be so pervasive among a lot of these people. Talk about that. That's true. My my respondents would describe feeling like they were being tricked every day, uh, feeling like they couldn't get their feet under them, feeling like if they depended on someone or trusted someone, they would only get hurt in the end. Um, you know, maybe they would join the military and, you know, expect a big signing bonus, but then it would turn out that the bonus was divided up over eight years, and so they felt like they couldn't save any money. You know, or maybe they would get a phone call promising a free magazine, and then all of a sudden they were getting, you know, collection notices saying they hadn't paid their bill. And so it was a sense of not understanding the bureaucracies or the institutional rules that surrounded them, um, not knowing who to ask for help and just feeling more and more confused and betrayed, like they were trying to do the right thing, but they couldn't figure out the rules. How much of this did you find to be somewhat of a a self-fulfilling prophecy, a chicken-of-the-egg kind of equation, whereby the alienation, the distrust, the, the isolation in many cases from institutions creates an environment where there's more isolation and more distrust, and all of it kind of caves in on itself? I think that's true. I, I think that they are growing up, you know, without the benefit of neighborhoods, without the benefit of community organizations, or in, and also in very fragile families. And so they kind of grow up learning that, you know, you can't really rely on people. You, you may not have people you can turn to for help. And so they really do embrace a kind of ethos of, I'm not going to trust anyone. I don't want to make myself vulnerable by relying on other people. And I do think that that you know, shapes their actions in the future where they're not they're not likely to go try to start a group of like-minded people to help each other because they've had so many bad experiences in the past. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It feeds into itself, and they, they just say, you know, I'm better off alone. Talk about the young people that you spoke with that, in fact, didn't necessarily fall into this trap. I mean, they might have been the outliers in the work that, that you did, but talk about those people that that were able to achieve some success, that were able to move out of this conundrum we've been talking about, and what perhaps is it that was different about them and their situation? So what was different for the few people who were able to have somewhat stable or upwardly mobile lives, I think comes down to community support and guidance. For example, one young man, um, his his mother remarried someone who had a college degree and this man was able to kind of sit down with my respondent and help him figure out, you know, what kinds of jobs would be great to, you know, have in the, in the economy as it stands, where do you want to invest? And this young man uh, became a nurse and he ended up having a pretty stable job with, you know, good benefits. And that was because he had someone to help him navigate uh, his path. And so the difference to me um, is that sense of uh, community support or guidance beyond the, beyond the family that can help you make the right choices and take the right risks Hmm. in your future. What about resources, other resources that might be available to these young people to help 
guide them in these areas? What, what, if any, other resources did you find might be available? That's a great question. So many of them are turning to therapy. Uh, they are turning to self-help books and support groups or meetup groups online to try to talk about uh, the pain and struggle that they've been going through in their life. You know, or maybe some of them would go to Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous if they'd had a struggle in the past and they wanted to talk to other people who were going through the same things they were. Um, and, you know, many of them did find a supportive community when they went to these uh, self-help groups. Uh, the problem, of course, is that they focused so much on their individual problems that they were not likely to talk about what they had in common. You know, they weren't likely to talk about how to reform the educational system or how to get better jobs. They were instead more likely to talk about how do I recover from my personal problems. Is there too much focus on the part of some of them on their own personal problems? Is there too much of a, of a kind of self-absorption in that? You know, I was, I was very shocked when I started hearing these stories, you know, people emphasizing their difficult childhoods, their addictions, their, you know, emotional or mental suffering or disorders, and their struggle to heal their depression or anxiety or to forgive their own family. You know, it, it was very shocking. Um, and I think that there is too much focus, but I think that the reason why people focus so much on the inside and how to repair themselves is because they feel very powerless when it comes to outside factors. They don't know how to get that job. They don't know how to stay married. You know, they don't know how to give their life meaning through these external markers. So they're very focused internally. What impact does the social and cultural landscape have, the media have, on, on these young people? Well, I think they've grown up surrounded by this sort of cultural ethos of everyone is responsible for themselves. You know, it's if you have problems, it's your job to fix it, right? You can hear that on Oprah or you can hear that, you can read that in self-help books or um, hear that from our political, you know, candidates that it's your job to work your way up, pull yourself up. If you're not happy, it's your job to fix it. And they really have bought into this message. And they tell me, you know, if I would just take more risks, I'd be fine. It's my fault. I'm not doing well. And so they really buy into this logic of, you know, if I'm not happy, if I'm not successful, it's all my fault. To what extent is it impacting, and you spend a lot of time talking about this, relationships and marriage? That's a great question. So one of the things that I found is that gender is very much in flux because when you, you know, when these young and men, young men and women envision a relationship, the men think that they should be providers. They think they need to be able to support a household or they need to be able to at least take a woman out to dinner and pay for it. Um, and so these men are kind of giving up on the idea of, you know, marriage and commitment until they feel financially stable. And, you know, we know that these reliable, well-paying jobs that men used to have are slipping away, and so it's hard for them to envision ever settling down and staying committed. And for women, on the other hand, it's sort of this idea of, you know, what do I get out of marriage, right? They have to, they've learned that they have to be independent. Uh, they like, some of them like it, some of them don't. And so they're a little bit afraid of investing everything they have in a relationship that might fail. And so there's sort of a dis disillusionment with commitment. What are the fundamental differences, though, in terms of gender in approaching the broader framework that we've been talking about? Certainly, it has been arguably less difficult for women coming out of college or junior college or in these situations, certainly in terms of finding jobs and potential economic opportunity. 
That's right. And these young men and women do in many ways have a lot more freedom than their parents and grandparents. You know, women especially, they can pursue higher education. They can buy a house on their own or, you know, they can they have more access to good jobs. Um, but, you know, this freedom is not available equally to everyone. So, you know, women who grow up in more privileged families can kind of reap the benefits of this newfound freedom. They can go to college. Um, they can buy a house. They can rise up through the ranks of uh, professional jobs. But for women who are born into families without as much, you know, know-how and without as many resources, the freedom is almost meaningless when you can't even get, you know, a stable routine job or you can't figure out how to apply for financial aid to go to college. How are the parents of these young people responding to this lack of opportunity that they see when their expectations certainly were different in their own lives and their expectations for their kids at one point were vastly different? I think that's interesting because their parents are sort of suffering from the same economic and social decline that their kids are growing up into. So the parents, you know, did probably got married and started off with stable blue-collar work. But, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, their jobs have become less stable. They've been laid off. They may have lost some of their benefits. And, you know, their families might have broken up. And so the parents are also suffering from the decline of traditional adulthood. And it makes it very difficult for them to prepare their children. They don't, they don't have the skills and knowledge and resources they need to give them. Is this strictly an economic issue? If you could wave the magic wand, so to speak, and the economic issues were, were to be more solvable within the economic framework of the country, would that solve the problem or is there something broader culturally going on here? I, I think there is something broader. I think that, you know, giving these young people maybe a stable floor of protection so that if they, you know, injured themselves at work, it wouldn't set them back five years or, you know, giving them some routine in their jobs so that they could count on being able to pay their bills every month is a really important first step. But I think it's also a much bigger issue of this attitude of having to go it alone and figure it out on yourself by yourself. You know, these are they're not growing up in families or communities or neighborhoods that are investing in them, that are giving them guidance, that are helping them figure out you know, what they want to do with their life or how they should invest in their futures. Um, and so it seems to me like it's not just economic. It's also a social and cultural problem of thinking everyone has to do it on their own. How much of it, though, is thinking about it in terms of these previous expectations? The the litany I mentioned, for example, in the introduction, the, the, the job, the house, the car, the marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How much of it is, is hemmed in? by a set of expectations that come from another time, another era. That's interesting and you know, they're very they are kind of nostalgic. They're almost mourning the loss of these of that era. They they want to go back. And you know, men would say to me, "Oh, I always thought I'd be sitting on my porch surrounded by a white picket fence listening to the Dick Van Dyke show with my wife." So they 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 really do long for these markers and milestones. But at the same time, they are very quick to redefine what it means to be an adult. So they've kind of given up on these markers, the the home, the car, the family, and uh, they've made adulthood a lot more about emotional progress, about saying, oh, I can, you know, get over my addiction or I can, you know, repair my difficult childhood relationship with my mother and that makes me an adult because I can control my feelings and I can decide I want to be different. Um, so I really think they've kind of shaken off um, 
uh, traditional markers of adulthood as impossible and moved on to define adulthood in this new way. Again, to the extent that they do that, is it cutting them off from opportunities that they might be able to find if that wasn't their focus, I guess? I, I think... In some ways, it does. It makes them much less likely to want to go, you know, join a political group and fight for better jobs or fight to, you know, repair and or rebuild a neighborhood because they are very focused on improving the self. You know, they've kind of made a virtue out of their isolation and decided to invest more and more in their own emotional growth um, instead of maybe their community growth or um, a neighborhood or a union at work. So, yeah, I do think that it makes them more distrustful and less likely to want to participate in any kind of bigger um, movement. Is there a resentment when they see other young people who have gone off to college and come out and gotten jobs? I mean, certainly they may be having more difficult times economically, but they're on the road to that dream we talked about before. Is there a resentment that, that is building up? You know, that's funny because when I was doing the interviews with these young people, I was in graduate school. Like, they knew I was trying to get a PhD um, and a job as a professor. And there was actually very, very little resentment because these young men and women do believe that if you work hard enough, you can make it. Um, and so they really they don't begrudge other people's success. And instead, they blame themselves that they're not working hard enough. And how are they, how are they dealing with that? How are some of them dealing with that? Part of how they deal with it is they try to take more and more risks. So they'll maybe move to a different area of the state where they think the cost of living will be lower um, and they can do a better job saving money. Or they take out, you know, enormous loans to try to get a degree and so that they think they'll have a better shot in the labor market. Um, and the problem is that even though they're taking these risks, uh, they don't have a lot of knowledge and so some of their risks actually backfire. For example, one woman bought a house um, not understanding the 14% interest rate and ended up you know, being foreclosed on. And so it's kind of the sense of being desperate to take risks and improving, improve their lives, but not having a great sense of how to make the right choices. Talk a little bit about the, the locales where you did these interviews in Richmond and, and in Lowell, Massachusetts. Sure. Well, for me, Lowell was a personal choice as well as a scholarly one. Um, my grandparents came from Lowell. My grandfather actually worked in a mill um, from the age of eight years old, but then was able to get, you know, a very stable blue-collar job as a prison guard. And then, you know, my dad and his brothers and sisters were able to get these great jobs as firefighters and police officers and, and nurses and were, you know, moved their family out to the suburb and really did capitalize on the American dream. Um, however, you know, this generation, watching my cousins and my family members, there's been sort of a backslide where the, the, good, the opportunities are, you know, harder and harder to find. And there's been a moving back to Lowell, trying to, you know, build an adult life without the stable jobs and without you know, maybe the knowledge they need to go to college. And so Lowell, to me, kind of symbolizes, you know, the decline of mobility, um, the decline of good blue-collar jobs, the loss of, you know, public investment in kids. And so I chose it for that reason. And then, you know, I was I was working at the University of Virginia when I did my when I wrote the book. And Richmond seemed very similar to to Lowell, the loss of good blue collar jobs, um, not a lot of protection for workers, decline of public funding, lots of tension. So 
those were my choices. Is there a sense that it that it is different in some way in urban America that that if you went to New York or if you went to Boston or if you went to parts of Los Angeles that in fact you would find a different landscape? It's hard to imagine how that would be the case um, because you know you'd get an even higher cost of living that would make it you know more difficult to move out and you know maybe you would find more jobs but at the same time it would be harder to support oneself. Um, so I don't. You know, and since, you know, since I did this project, I've done more interviews across the country, and I've heard pretty much the same story of not knowing how to make the right choices. You know, maybe there are more opportunities in New York, but that doesn't mean you can recognize them or you have the guidance to find them. The whole business of making the right choice, baby boomers would argue that, in fact, nobody was there to tell them the right choice, that, in fact, their parents, in many cases, hadn't gone to college, that they had to figure it out on their own. What's the difference? Well, I think, you know, I think that they might say that, but there are some important differences. One is that, first of all, you didn't need to go to college to have a stable life because there were plenty of, you know, well-paying, reliable, blue-collar jobs. Um, And, you know, there were unions and there was a lot more solidarity. And people were also much more embedded in their communities, whether in churches or, you know, the Elks Club. Um, And so... As much as maybe they didn't have someone saying, this is how you go to college, they were embedded in a big community of people who could help them. You know, if they, if your own parents couldn't help you, you could probably turn to extended family or you could turn to your pastor or, you know, a teacher to help you figure out your way. And so, um, you know, having done interviews with people who are much older, there is this sense of, you know, I could ask my pastor to help me figure out how to get a loan for college. Do these young people or do any of them believe that there is a road that public policy could take that would in some ways mitigate some of these problems? No, that's a very difficult question because they have so much distrust of government, you know, having had these experiences of maybe not being able to get the financial aid they thought they needed or um, maybe being fined for not purchasing mandatory health insurance in Massachusetts, their experiences with government are so fraught with distrust and betrayal that um, it's really hard for them to think about solutions that could come from government or from policy. And they're also pretty isolated. They don't have great knowledge of what's going on politically. Um, and so it would be difficult for them to imagine public policy solutions. And do you see any of them becoming politically active in any way, or activists, I should say, in any way? I had one out of a hundred who saw himself as more of an activist. He would try to um, start a union at the grocery store where he worked. Um, But it's it's been a very tough road for him. He's still working on it. Um, But he was, you know, maybe the one person in, in my whole sample who had this sense of solidarity or workers' rights. Do they see themselves as part of a larger socioeconomic problem as part of a larger issue of the economic divide in the country? Well, you know, they, they'd be much more likely to blame the people below them to think that there were people abusing the system or taking welfare when they didn't deserve it or getting, you know, the benefits or taking their tax dollars to, you know, cheat the government than they would be to look up and say there's a lot of inequality in this country and there's a divide between the haves and have-nots. And do they see themselves as part of that? Um, they would see themselves as sort of people who are trying to work and make it but can't because there's too much investment on people who don't want to work. If you were to look at these same people 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, what do you think you'll find? You know, that's really interesting. I, I did these interviews from 2008 to 2010, and I've followed many of my uh, informants, and most of them are in exactly the same place. They're still kind of bouncing from one unstable job to another. Uh, they, you know, one week they'll be living with their cousin, and maybe they'll have their own apartment for a while, but then maybe they'll end up having to move back in with a parent. Um, their relationships are also kind of a, you know, merry-go-round where they're in and out. Um, and so, you know, the only thing that's really changed is that some of them have had children. And so I see the future to be much like it is now, to be unstable, kind of in and out of jobs, in and out of relationships. Jennifer Silva, the book is Coming Up Short, Working Class Adulthood in an Age of Uncertainty. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Jennifer, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.